The preaching of God's Word this morning is there from Revelation 1 and verses 12 to 17. Revelation 1 verses 12 to 17. We've just read, of course, these verses, but to focus our attention here again, verses 16 and 17, speaking of this Son of Man. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. One of the great comforts given to the church is found at the end of Matthew in chapter 28 when Christ is preparing his disciples and he says, having commissioned them, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And this has been, of course, a ground of great encouragement to the saints in all ages, that it's not that we worship one who came and left, though there's truth, of course, that he has come and he's ascended. But though he has ascended, he is yet with his people. That, of course, he, by the Spirit, is with each individual, but also with the assembled people, as we see testified here in this chapter, that Christ is in the midst of the seven golden uh, candlesticks, the lampstands. And so Christ is with his church. We read earlier from Daniel 7, and we saw the historical account of the various empires that would arise and would do great things, troubling the cause of Christ, not least of which, indeed, the greatest of which is that anti-Christian kingdom, which would destroy, or at least attempt to destroy and undo the purity of Christ's kingdom. And when you consider those images that Daniel saw, it is, of course, an overwhelming sight. And when we experience something, whether through the reading of God's word or in our own experience, the assaults of Satan and the wicked kingdoms of this world against the cause of Christ, it is that we realize how weak we are to overcome. And indeed, how impossible it is for us in our own strength to do any good thing against those which oppose the advance of Christ. And this can quickly discourage us. We aren't told much of what was going on in the mind of John, but you'll see that as we read, he was exiled and for what cause? Well, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos for the word of God. He was faithfully discharging his work that was given to him by Christ. And now he's sent, as it were, away. And with little foreseeable ability to minister to the saints, though the Lord had other things in store. Because, of course, the church's hope is not in John the Apostle. It's not in Paul. It's not in great reformers that we look to. Uh, to help us and guide us. It's not to current pastors in themselves, but it is in him who appears here to John and who is held forth to us in great and glorious ways. And it's this person of our Savior, the Redeemer, particularly thinking on the glory that is here testified of him that we wish to consider and give attention to this morning. John is now exiled and yet Christ draws near and reveals himself. And it's astounding, of course, the parallels between Revelation and the book of Daniel and the historical unfolding of God's purpose and the various assaults that would try and seek to upend and destroy the cause of Christ. And yet just as Daniel is told, so John, it will be that the Lord shall stand victorious. 
And you see, here is where our hope is found. It's not in looking at the advance outwardly alone of numbers of churches or numbers of individuals. It's not merely in looking at the strengthening of your own soul, however much we owe God gratitude for these things. The sole foundation of our confidence rests squarely upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. And this, of course, is our hope. This is not just the church's hope generally. This is our hope. Now, all of us would have said that entering in the door. Where is your hope to be found? It's in Jesus Christ. Doubtlessly, John would have said the same thing. And though we aren't given the supernatural vision that John was given, yet we have the record of the same. And indeed, if we meditate upon the words, they are words which should astound us. And we would be left in some sense with the same effect. John falls at his feet as dead. Why is that? Because as you know, the one who appears to John now in this vision is the very one upon whose breast John had laid his head multiple times. No other apostle knew such intimacy as John did with this Savior. And yet, what we have here is the display of his glory. And you'll remember, of course, that there was another such account of his glorious display at the Mount of Transfiguration. John among them as they were led up to the mount, and Christ is transfigured before them, and they fall down again. Well, brethren, we need to remember that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he hasn't changed, that his glory is still the same. And indeed, one day, with our eyes, we shall see his glory. And there's much bound up to encourage us, but not least of which is to remember that Christ possesses incomparable glory, that however men boast and become barrel-chested in this world, however many people seek to attack and destroy the cause of Christ, however low it becomes, yea, though it comes down to two witnesses and is diminished, and we would say with Elijah, I only am left, I only have not bowed the knee, yet even then do we have great cause of encouragement to be strengthened with assurance to know that whatever transpires between now and then, Christ's kingdom will stand victorious. And you see, it's not because of an eschatological viewpoint. It's because of the simple fact of who Christ is that fills us with an optimism regarding the future. It's because we know the one who here appears to John. We know that he has no rival. There's no one who can truly stand shoulder to shoulder with our king. And though we can very quickly be downtrodden and our very bodies can be overthrown by an unseen virus, yet Christ cannot be downtrodden by the wealth of the world, by the ways of Satan, and even by the stumblings of his people. And when we take our eyes off of this, it's easy for us to become discouraged. And so for a season, let us consider how it is that our beloved Redeemer is incomparable in glory. And we see our Redeemer portrayed in so many ways in this book, but here particularly, children, you'll know, of course, the threefold office that our beloved Redeemer holds, how he's prophet and priest and king. And you can see different aspects of that. How is he a prophet? Well, of course, he speaks and reveals the will of God for our salvation. And of course, here Christ 
is the one who has out of his mouth a sharp two-edged sword, whose voice, verse 15, is as the sound of many waters. So he's speaking the will of God. And yet it's in a picture of conquering. So he's not just on his heels, as it were, being pushed back. But as we'll see, if we were to read the rest of this book, he's writing, going forth, victorious. We see him appearing in this glorious garb, which is both royal and priestly together. This garment that is mentioned in verse 13, speaking of the length of the robe and from the chest downward, and the golden girdle, of course, which signifies something of that royal priesthood. And of course, Christ is of the order of Melchizedek, which is the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the king of Salem. So we have here our beloved Redeemer, and he's portrayed for a moment in the display of his glory, which strikes John and brings him low, and yet in the end will cause John to be greatly encouraged, which of course is recorded for our benefit. And so consider three things this morning as we think about, about our Savior. Firstly, how he is glorious in himself. Secondly, how he is glorious in his church. And thirdly, how he's glorious in his power. These three things helping us to consider once again and freshly our beloved king that we then may be strengthened whatever may come in history in our own lives in the church's experience to know and rest assured that he will indeed stand victorious so firstly then that our king our savior and redeemer is glorious in himself you'll see various descriptions which could of course whisk us away and cause us to be uh, riding upon fanciful heights, but we can be governed in our understanding by comparing Scripture with Scripture. We have something here of the divine glory of Christ, and this is something that we need to remember. Although it's right to say that Satan makes war with Christ, we should never think they're equal. We should never consider that Satan is Christ's equal. It's not as if there are two great ones who have a lengthy ability and record of victories, who are now uh, going through a tournament-style assault, now coming and having shown themselves the better of the others, are now going to find out who's the better of the two. Though Satan makes war with Christ and the saints, Satan is a creature. Now, that should not give us some false and vain confidence because we are creatures, and we ought not to become puffed up in ourselves. Though we're brought low, and remember, he is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Yet we also remember that our King and Savior, our Redeemer, is the Lord of glory. That he is the eternal Son of God. And you see something of that when you read, for instance, of John's record, verse 14. His head and his hairs were white like wool, and white as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame a fire. Now, we could, of course, simply understand right away, well, white hair refers to agedness. And so as we age, typically our hair will turn, at least to some extent and some degree. And yet we don't simply have to rest upon our own observation, because you'll remember where we can see a parallel to this in Daniel 7. Having read that earlier, you can turn and you can see something of the appearance of this Son of Man but you can also notice a parallel when it is in verse 9 recorded of Daniel 7, 
that Daniel beheld till the thrones were cast down and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like the pure wool. And there's a lot of parallelism here and images that are the same because, of course, the one who's portrayed before us is the same. And though we remember that Christ was humbled and did indeed humble himself, yet we also remember that even in his humiliation, he is the eternal son of God. And we see little whispers and hints of that through the miracles that are recorded for us but here, it is in the forefront. It is presented with such force and power that it is unmistakably clear that the one who now appears to John in his exile, and think of that, is there not some testimony of strength of the enemy that he has power to exile a choice servant as John the Apostle? And yet now John is seeing one who is greater than the enemy. And we need to remember this as well, because our enemy loves to lie. He is the liar and the father of lies. And so soon as he gains, as it were, the upper hand in uh, the match, as he uh, casts down, as he trips us up and we give into temptation of our own sinful ways, so soon as he ready to appear with such strength as he would persuade us to be is unmatched and unable to be overthrown. When we look at the open idolatry of our present age, indeed today, and so on, and how men have adopted man's traditions in a variety of things, and love to tie that together with true piety, we can become disheartened and say, really, is there any hope for these things? And yet, brethren, notice, the one who comes and appears to John is the ancient <clears throat> of days, his head bears hair that is white like wool, as white as snow. And so the one who, though incarnate still, is nonetheless that eternal one, an eternal son of God. We saw that in Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days. But you can see in other ways the same which is evident to us in the scriptures. John chapter 1, of course, testifies of the divinity of our beloved Savior. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. We could go on, of course, and consider various other passages that testify of His divine glory. That though the angels exceed us in power, yet they do not come close to the power of the eternal Son. Hebrews, of course, testifies of the transcendent glory, the incomparable glory of the Son. When you consider the angels' strength, yet the angels are but creatures. What's the point? Well, the point is to remember that it's not merely the record of what Christ has accomplished that gives us encouragement. There's truth to that. Because when we search the scriptures, we see most clearly that Christ is one who has never lost. He's never stumbled. At the most ferocious moment of Satan's attacks, we see him at his weakest in the incarnation, yet victorious against Satan. So his record is flawless. But brethren, there's a reason for that. It's because of his divine person. He is the divine Son of God, the Word who was with God, who is God, who indeed 
was made flesh, and yet of his fullness, verse 16 of John 1, have all we received and grace for grace, which we'll take up, Lord willing, in the afternoon, the grace of our beloved Redeemer. So brethren, this is something that we need to come to again and again. You discover more regularly what you are in yourself. And perhaps there's nothing more discouraging to become aware of what you are in yourself. As Christians, we mature and grow, and we acknowledge that. We wish not to speak against the Lord's work. We acknowledge that there's a change that's overtaken us by his grace. It's real. There really is a maturing development for which we give thanks. And yet, we're learning Paul's groaning. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? It's easy to say, isn't it? It's easy intellectually to assent to and say that's true. It's even true of everyone that's a Christian. It's true of us to some extent. We know that, yes. But so soon as the Lord allows us to sense the wretchedness of sin that remains in us and we get something of a clearer light on our own hearts, many times we're ready to cast up our arms and say, what's the point? Why continue? We look at congregations, our own congregations, and we see things that discourage us. There are whispers of encouragement only for something to break out and to cause us to become frustrated, downcast. And where we thought there was something that was bringing, bringing hope, we see that it's turned, as it were, to dust, and there's nothing in it. We see it in larger sections, and that we can hear of reviving of the past, yet we see the lands of revival now overtaken by darkness and gloom. And perhaps we're tempted to say, well, maybe there really isn't much to encourage us, much to uphold us. And yet, brethren, the more we become acquainted with ourselves and even of the church, it's most necessary that the more we become acquainted with the king. You'll know, of course, McShane said this personally of himself, that for every look to self, I must take ten to Christ. Brethren, there's a reason for that. We need to look to ourselves. We need to examine ourselves. We need to discover wicked ways within ourselves. We need to be reminded of our weakness and so on. We need to consider rightly and accurately the church, its strengths and weaknesses, relatively thinking through them and so on. But brethren, the more we look to these things, with a clear eye, the more we'll see that which discourages us, and the more we see the enemy's kingdom and how strong his clutches are upon souls that stand in damnation and try as we might to speak to them the word of truth, try as we might in giving tracts to them and praying for them and gathering with others to pray, and it seems instead of things getting better, they only grow worse. It's then that we realize, though we're right to labor with the means of grace, we must labor with our eyes exclusively to Christ because of his divine glory. He alone is able to advance his cause. He alone is able to bring that which he's begun in us unto maturity in this life, as well as unto glory in the life to come. He who has established the seven golden lampstands, he who upholds the seven stars, the ministry, and so on, is the only one who will cause his kingdom to advance. And he who even at times sets you aside in providential trials and afflictions and makes you, as it were, to face questions 
He is the one who is able to sustain you in the midst of your trials because of who he is, the eternal Son of God. You'll notice more glory in himself. It's particularly focused on his piercing omniscience when it says that he turns and sees this one glorious and his eyes were as a flame of fire. Eyes, of course, see. Children, you know this. If you close your eyes, you don't see. You open your eyes, now you see. But fire, well, fire burns, consumes. It wastes away what is worthless. It purges the dross. Here, something's being told us of our beloved King, our Redeemer. That he doesn't just know about things, but he searches things. He searches it out. And in searching things out, he purifies, judges, consumes. And of course, all of these things will be more fully applied in the uh, next two chapters, which you're encouraged to read. But we see enough here of Christ to remember that he sees all. Brethren, this is something we need to remember. He sees his brothers and sisters being persecuted. He sees the attacks and the deceptions of Satan. He sees the advances of false religion. When we sit back and say, does anybody see this? Is anybody else aware that whole multitudes are being swept into deception? Is anybody aware what's going to happen to our own nation? What has happened? What is happening? Does anyone take any notice, any inventory of the countless multitudes that are perishing in their unbelief? Is anyone aware of the false gospels which are being multiplied today? Does anyone see me and how I'm trying by his grace to be faithful? Well, brethren, here's something to remember. Christ does. Christ sees it. And it's not escaping his understanding. We sang earlier in the Lord's providence, Psalm 52, and what a thought. That the one who's speaking and is quite proud and boastful will be wiped off the face of the earth. That's because Christ sees. And though for a season, for his good purpose, he oversees and directs even the wickedness of man, yet he will not let one slide, escaping his judgment. And brethren, he sees you. He sees the whole world, yes, but he sees the church. And isn't this what plagues our hearts the most? When among the visible church, errors abound and immorality breaks out and we become discouraged and say, is it really worth striving as an individual, as a family, as a congregation, presbytery, denomination, as brothers with others? Is it really worth striving when we see so many failures? Christ sees, and as we'll also see, he addresses it by his word. But brethren, here's encouragement. The glory that Christ has in himself. But he also is glorious in his church. So secondly, consider this. The one who sees, where is it that he is seen? John hears this voice, and what a thought. This voice of many waters. It's an awe-inspiring thing to be near a waterfall with Seemingly incalculable amounts of water pouring over and the sound that is hitting. You can hear records of missionaries 
breaking through the interior of Africa and miles away hearing the rushing of the waters and so on and getting near and it's deafening. And Christ's voice is such as is of many waters. And here John turns to look at him. Notice we've seen a little bit of the glory that Christ has in himself, but notice where he is. Verse 12, it says, Being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man. This glorious one is not looking upon the church. He's actually in the midst of the church. He's with her. Of course, we see this explicitly mentioned when there's the explanation of this very thing. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, or lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Commentators love to make this point, which is a beautiful one. They're not candles or lamps themselves, they're lampstands. And so they are that which then bears that which bears light. They're not the light themselves, but they're holding forth him who is the light. And yet, though there's great encouragement in thinking of that, notice that he, the Son of Man, this glorious one, is said to be in the midst of them. We're right to realize that regarding the local presence of Christ in his exalted glory. He is ascended to the right hand of the Father in glory above. And yet, we realize this and all of the encouragements of it, that as the angels saw the disciples staring up into the heavens and said, why are you staring up? As he has gone up, so he will come again. He's going to return. And so we're right to acknowledge that Christ is there. He's ascended. And so in our own flesh and blood, though and albeit glorified, he is truly ascended to the right hand of the Father, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. But brethren, it is also right to acknowledge what here is testified, that Christ is in the midst of his churches. You think of, as was mentioned at the beginning, when Christ speaks to his disciples, commissioning them to go forth to the ends of the earth, he doesn't say, lo, I will know about what you're doing, or I'll watch you do it, or any of those things, as comforting as those would be. But he says, lo, I am with you always. Not most of the time, not in the seasons of revival, not when there's the outpouring of the Spirit and sinners are being converted and people quickened and enlivened and whole neighborhoods overwhelmed by the gospel, multitudes flocking to Christ. Yes, of course, we see the evidence of Christ with us. But I'm with you always, even John, I'm with you on the Isle of Patmos. We see him earlier with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. We see him again and again with his suffering people. Indeed, the burning bush, an image of the church burning, consumed, and yet, or burning, and yet not consumed, and yet God speaking in the midst of it. What a blessed privilege to remember that Christ is with his people. Is not Christ so with his people that when they are persecuted, he is persecuted? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? 
And isn't it striking that it's Christ in glory speaking that? It's because of the union he has with his people. That we're told, of course, that he is the head, but we need to remember we're his members, his body united with him. That there is a gracious and real union with our beloved Savior, and he is in us and with us. And this, of course, is to strengthen us. This is where we start to see our encouragement come in. Not by a mere distant looking to Christ, but in knowing that that Christ to whom we look is with us. He's not left us to ourselves. And though indeed he brings to us trials, how often have we been comforted in the midst of our trials to sing Psalm 23? That yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Not because you've said that you'll sustain me, though that's true. Not because you said you'll meet me on the other side and provide these things, though it's true that Christ will indeed provide us things. But as we say, thou art with me. Isn't this the thing that both Satan loves to try and attack and our own hearts are very willing to reject? Christ is with me. We even find ourselves in our prayers saying, you know, why have you gone? Why have you left? And there's a propriety. The scriptures even acknowledge it. There is the withdrawing of his felt presence, but there's not the actual withdrawing of his presence from his people. He is truly with us, though he doesn't make us to feel at all times his presence. And in doing so, what is he asking us to do but to trust his word, to believe his promises, not to live by our feelings, but to live by his promises and assurances provided us that by faith we would know that this glorious Christ is with us. Romans tells us, and what a wonder it is that we're told this, that even the whole creation groans for the revelation of the sons of God. Right now, we don't appear what we will appear to be. Right now, we ourselves are in a humbled state. And it's not as if, though idolatrous artists have tried to paint halos over people and try to give signs of something special regarding the saints, none of that actually takes place in this world. Our bodies wear out. We have difficulties, trials. We have relational stresses. We have our own sins and temptations, all of which burden us. And yet, brethren, the union that we have with Christ is real. You can see how this is, of course, with an appeal given to us in Colossians chapter 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, the glorious one who is himself now as the God-man glorified is the one with whom we are risen. He who is glorious and as the mediator glorified is now at work already in us. What is this to do? Well, first, don't escape the fact that it says that if we are risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. 
your identity is now bound up with Christ. This glorious one is now your identity. It doesn't mean that we've lost our personal identity. It doesn't mean we sort of lose our personality or anything of that sort. But it does mean that at the depths of what we are, we are now bound up with Christ. He is our life. What a blessed statement it is in verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Not just in the location of glory, but gloriously as well. This is why John will say in his epistle that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Paul writes in Romans 8 that we are predestined to be conformed unto the image of his Son. Brethren, think of this for a moment. We don't see it yet. We see whispers of it or hear whispers of it, perhaps. We can see relative growth and we can see a growth of hatred against sin and a love to the Lord and his righteous will. But we don't fully see, do we? The perfection of his image in us. And yet, because of Christ, we are assured that that image will be fully formed in us. That's where you're going. In your experience, because of Christ and being bound with Christ, this is your certain future. Christ is in the midst of the golden candlesticks. He is giving life to his people. He's not a distant savior. He is near unto us. And so many other passages would shed light upon this. But the point, of course, is there that Christ is with us. You remember, children, the building of the tabernacle and later the temple. And it was this outward construction which was holding forth this spiritual truth that God was dwelling in the midst of his people. And of course, this is most perfectly realized in Jesus Christ himself. But by God's grace, through faith in Christ, God now dwells in us. Christ inhabits us, his people. And so the glorious one is gloriously at work in the midst of his people. Brethren, it is this Christ, this glorious Christ, who is not with the abstracted church today, but in this church today, this congregation, this Presbyterian denomination, the church of Christ beyond our denomination. It's this Christ which then gives us hope. It's this Christ which then spurs us onward to forget the things of the world. Why would we waste our time with the vanity of this world when we have been given the privilege of having the intimate fellowship with this glorious one. He is glorious and he glorifies. Well, much more could be said, but brethren, we move on thirdly to consider that this glorious one who is glorious in his church is likewise glorious in his power. Men follow after phantoms regarding power things that really aren't powerful. Men will chase after muscles for a season, realizing the whole way that they'll peak and eventually deteriorate. Their bodies will indeed fail. 
Mechanically, they seek the same horsepower revs up and so on. And the speed increases in technology. Power is ever being sought. That we're liable to miss the display of Christ's power because we're so carnal in our esteeming of what power is. Notice what's said of Christ regarding his word. It testifies to us, of course, of power. When it speaks, as we mentioned, verse 15, his voice as the sound of many waters. Children look at passing rivers and think it's not that strong. And yet parents know that they're not to wait out there, that what's unseen by the current will take them away very quickly. You go to the beach and there's warnings against riptides because, of course, the sandbar breaks and the rushing of water is beyond what even an Olympic swimmer can endure. The power of water is displayed when you look at the Grand Canyon and other places, not the mindlessness of millions and millions of years, but the torrent of the reality of the great flood. Water is powerful. And here, Christ's voice is as the sound of many waters. It's thunderous. It's echoing. It is overwhelming, deafening. You can't hold a conversation when there's the flood of many waters going on. Because though you shout, you can't be heard. The voice outdoes it. But notice as well, it's immediately followed up with, he had in his hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Children love to play with swords as they're young, and perhaps as they age, they love it still. But swords, of course, are that ancient weapon that was used, certainly to defend themselves, but also to attack. We read, of course, of the civil magistrate that he does not bear the sword in vain. He bears the ability to take the life of his subjects when there is a proper crime committed. Christ is said to have a sharp two-edged sword out of his mouth. And that puzzles us because we're stuck in the carnal image. But it's not to be a carnal image. It's to be a helpful testimony of what his word does. It is like a sword. It cuts down. It kills, it protects, and defends. As a warrior goes forth with the sword unsheathed and attacks, so Christ goes forth with his sword unsheathed and attacks. We sing Psalm 45, gird thy sword upon thy thigh. We're not just lost in the ancient ideas of battle. We're actually seeing Christ take your word and go forth and subdue your enemies. And this is where true power is seen. His word is his power. We say, wait a second, words are meaningless, aren't they? I mean, you say something, I say something. We're liable to break our words. And there's our problem. We're thinking about our words. But we're not talking about our words. We're talking about his word. And think for a moment what his word did. He brought the whole of the universe into existence by his word. Not just the mountains that you look upon, but the whole of this continent not just the water you might visit and look and see the horizon to, but the whole of all the oceans. But brethren, not just that, not just the sun and the moon that we see, but the stars that dot the sky in the night and the various galaxies that are hurled throughout the universe. All of that substance and reality, all of the spirit reality of our own souls and the angels and demons, all of it was brought forth 
by the word of his power. He spoke, and it was. And so, whereas we're tempted because of carnal judgment to think, well, words really aren't that powerful, we remember whose word it is, and then we become encouraged. And we start to realize it's not in the might of men, it's not in the numbers of men. We're encouraged right now as a presbytery because in the Lord's mercies we see various works established. And there is a right way to be encouraged by that as we'll see because those are places where his word is going forth. But there can be a carnal encouragement which is no encouragement just to be encouraged by the raw data of new numbers. Brethren, the encouragement comes because those are places where Christ is unsheathing his sword. And it's there where he will gather in his elect it's there where he will advance his kingdom. It's there where he will convert a young man to whom he'll call to the ministry. And then he'll send him forth into other places that his word would go forth. You see, the encouragement comes not from the flesh and blood that we see, but from the glorified flesh and blood of our beloved Savior, whose word goes forth with power to save the lost, to build up his kingdom, to destroy Satan. You know, every four years, our nation shows its idolatrous ways of politics, and Christians join in the mix. Brethren, there's no political party that's among us that's going to do one good for the church. Not one. And whereas people are going to be tempted to become discouraged when they see whoever wins this election or the next or the next after that, should the Lord sustain this current nation, there is zero ground of discouragement for the Christian. Because our king has a weapon which the weapons amassed by this nation and all the nations can't do anything with. And so soon as it tries to take the weapons of this world's warfare and targets the people of Christ, they're actually spreading the seed, which then goes forth and brings in others. So the worst that Satan can do actually then extends Christ's kingdom further. And yet, brethren, we so often become discouraged with all of these sights which ought to humble us, ought to convince and convict us of our sin and other sins, but ought not to discourage us to think that the battle is even in question. The battle's not going to be lost because the battle is the Lord's. We remember this, of course. We hear its battle cry in the Scriptures. Why was there such confidence among God's people as they go forth to far superior numbers? It's because they knew where their hope rested. The battle is the Lord's. When this becomes the rally cry of the church, the church will face all of its enemies, all of the history that is here laid forth for us, much of which has been fulfilled, much of which still awaits fulfillment, and all of which has burdensome, difficult things guaranteed to come to the church's experience. Yet when the battle cry returns to, our battle is the Lord's battle. Christ leads it. He's the captain of our salvation, going forth, riding, conquering, and to conquer. There's no power like his power. Then it is, right encouragement comes, that doesn't have the face, the height, the weight of any man in this room, any woman in this room, any other that's greatly influential throughout social media, 
because our hope is in the Lord's word. I mean, you think of how the Lord loves to display this point in history. Of course, there are issues we would have with Charles Spurgeon, but if you don't know his conversion, it's striking. If you do know it, it's striking still as he wanders into a chapel where the minister was not found and though he had access to his grandfather's Puritan works and so on, yet unconverted, and he sits under in the dark uh, a shade of uh, the overhang. And this man who's not a preacher is just standing up saying, you know, look unto the Lord and be saved and so on, and appealing and appealing, and points out to Charles Spurgeon, who's unconverted. And the Lord's pleased to use that, to convert him, who then is used of the Lord as an instrument in others. Spurgeon himself, crying out, testing the acoustics. And one in the rafters is converted by what? By the cleverness of Spurgeon? No. Because it's not Spurgeon who converted anyone. It's the Lord who converts sinners by his word. And we can get lost in the thought of how do I outthink the enemy when really we simply need to go to our Lord and say, just unsheathe your sword. and The battle's yours. This is why Christians, real Christians, gather around, rally around the preaching of his word. Because there's still something of the enemy in our hearts that needs to be subdued. And we realize that the way of its subduing is by his sword at work. The battle is the Lord's. And you'll notice he has his ambassadors. So it's his word, but he has his seven ministers. Of course, not only seven, but all ministers. These stars in his right hand are the angels or messengers of the churches, which will be addressed in each of the subsequent sections of chapters 2 and 3. These ministers appointed who are the heralds of Christ Paul, of course, testifying that we are ambassadors of God, as if God did beseech you by us. This is what a minister does. They are used of the Lord to speak the word of God. This is why Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. The word which we acknowledge, chapter 3, is inspired of God and is useful for all of these blessed things. That's the word you must preach. Why? Because that's the sword that Christ will use. This is why we treasure the ministry, not because of the man's personality, wit, cleverness, ability, study, and so on, though, of course, we pray that the Lord would give gifts and graces, but because the king has been pleased to appoint the wielding of his sword from the mouth of his servants as they preach the word. This is why we invite people to hear the preaching of the gospel. This is why when people are talking about evangelism, they're thinking about all sorts of tactics, we sort of groan with them because they're overlooking the fundamentally clear thing that's primary. These people need to hear the preaching of the gospel. Brethren, when we get a sense of his glorious power that is able to convert sinners, to subdue enemies, to become reconciled and friends, indeed to sanctify us, and we start to see whatever the power of man is, there's no power like unto our kings. Well, brethren, consider then the glory of your king who is with you, whose sword is unsheathed, who comes to conquer, to subdue, to save, to sanctify 
And yet as you do, consider all of the things that oppose his success. And be sure to take good inventory of it. Mark every enemy, all of their influence, all of their finances, all of their successes, all of the numbers that follow after them. But be sure to look again at the glorious Savior who is the King and Head of the Church and realize that there's no contest. Look at the ongoing reign of Antichrist and realize that it encroaches upon territory that once seemed not to belong unto it and gather others into it in the so-called you know, road to Rome that is prevailing among some reform today. And yet realize, as godless of a work as that is, there's not a cause for us to lose any hope because Christ stands supreme. And yet as that's true, ought this not to evoke from us a great petition and to cry out to our King, the battle's not ours, the battle's yours. I need it. My family needs your grace. This congregation needs your grace. The presbytery, the nation, the nations need your grace. And yet as we look at all of the enemies and the great need, and as then we look at the glory of our great King and Redeemer and Savior, it's then that we have hope to press on with true, well-founded confidence that our Savior will not lose, but will stand victorious against the worst of his and our enemies. Praise God for Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me for prayer? God in heaven, as we think on these things, there's, there's much indeed that escapes and evades our understanding. But please give us a sight of Christ as revealed in your word that we would see the one in whom we have trusted, the one who indeed humbled himself and died upon the cross and was buried and remained under the power of death for three days, yet did arise and ascended and is seated at your right hand and is reigning as the glorious King and yet is not distant from us, but is with us. And so, Lord, as we take inventory of the enemies and the attacks, as we see the record of his successes, and as we realize, oh, how much there is still within us that is, as it were, belonging to the enemy. Yet, oh, God, cause us to take hope as we look to Christ, who is in himself glorious, who is with his people, and whose power is invincible. Expose us to his word and bless his word to work within us, to bring forth life and by us to bring forth fruit to his glory. So forgive us then our sins and bless us for Jesus' sake in whose name we pray. Amen.